Our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 10. We're reading from verses 13 through 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to him, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask for Your blessing. Give us understanding by Your Spirit that our lives may be lived in a manner faithful to You and that You would guide us into all truth. Speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, I began reading all the novels that I was assigned in high school. I had at least familiarized myself with them during high school, but I didn't have a great value on them. And so I had this row of books, and in a quest to read the books that were in my library, I decided to start picking up these novels. One of the first ones was John Steinbeck's The Pearl. My motivations for choosing The Pearl were probably rather uh, sordid because it was short. It's a fable, something like a parable. It reads fairly quickly. You can move through it with great haste. But it's a provocative book, and I recommend it to all of you. Even though Steinbeck does not share Christian faith, he works with many Christian ideas, and he tells the story of a family somewhere along a gulf 
It's not specified where, but the father's name being Kino and the mother's Juana. They have a young son and they're desperately poor. They can barely provide for their own needs. Kino is an oyster harvester and he searches for pearls. The pearls are not of great quality. The entire village lives in harmony, but also great poverty. Kino doesn't have the resources he needs to even procure a doctor's treatment for his son who is bit by a scorpion at the opening of the book. He's filled with shame in front of the entire village because of his inability to do so. But then that day, he goes out into the gulf on his grandfather's canoe. His wife is with him as well as his son, and he dives down. He was excellent at his diving. And on going down into the depths of of the water, he sees a gleaming glow, and then it shuts. He moves over to find a large oyster. He takes it to the surface. He opens it, and there was a brilliant pearl. Steinbeck comments that it was the largest pearl in the world. And then he writes this, in the surface of the great pearl, he could see dreams form. Kino could see a future that was different than his past, that was different than his present difficulties. All that the pearl would offer him, resources and vitality, freedom from his present distress, he could give his son a future that he otherwise couldn't give him if the pearl could give him money. The book then unfolds in all the disaster that the pearl brings into Kino and Juana's life. The canoe is burned. Their house is burned as people covetously try to obtain the pearl from Kino. He loses everything in the village and then he's chased by men and ultimately he loses his most precious possession, his son. He returns to the village, the pearl still in his possession. And standing on the edge of the gulf, he looks at the pearl once again. And listen to Steinbeck's description. No longer is it illuminated and brilliant and glorious. He says it was gray and ulcerous. The pearl was ugly like a malignant growth. The pearl that had once offered such hope and vitality and such a future in which he had seen his dreams was now something awful. And Kino takes the pearl and he throws it into the gulf back to where it came from. And Steinbeck's fable is a warning to all who read it about the danger of possessions and riches, the chaos that it can kick off in our lives. He wants to bring us to an awareness of these things. And it's the same type of confrontation that Jesus has with a rich young man who approaches Him this morning. The danger of money and possessions that the young man was not aware of, that he was not conscious of, that he could not yet see. He comes to Jesus asking a question. Seems to be an honest one. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be part of the life of the world to come? It was a good question. But yet he leaves sorrowful. He is sent away dejected because of Jesus' answer. 
And in this, Jesus is highlighting how riches can keep us from the kingdom of God. So the most important question that we can ask this morning is why are possessions so dangerous? Why do possessions have the ability to keep us from entering the kingdom of God? Jesus has something serious to say to this young man, and He has something that echoes down through time to say to us today as well. There's three main re- things that Jesus points to about the dangers of riches. And the first is this, is that our riches are so dangerous, our possessions are so dangerous because we become possessed by our possessions and not the love of God. It's interesting how the story is told in verse 17. Jesus was setting out on His journey. A man ran up and knelt before Him and asked Him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We've seen this formula several times in the Gospel story of people coming to Jesus and kneeling down in front of Him. Running up to Him and kneeling down. And Mark is in a very clever way telling us about the sickness of riches because do you know who the last person to run up to Jesus and kneel down was? The Gerasene demoniac. He ran up to Jesus and knelt down. And friends, it's Mark's way of pointing out this man's desperate sickness. Despite all his social gravitas, despite his social capital in the community, he was a wealthy man and was probably well respected. They were in the first century. It was just simply the way the world worked. And yet this man was desperately sick. He was diseased and possessed. And Jesus was saying that he needed to be healed. And so how does Jesus go about it? There was not a demon to cast out. There was not a physical affliction to fix. And so Jesus answers his question. He first asks a question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus gives the young man the second table of the law. He starts with commandment 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and goes back to 5. The order is not specifically important. But Jesus enumerates there what it means to love neighbor. That's what the second table of the law is about. The first table being primarily oriented to loving God. And the young man answers that he has done all of these since his youth. There's some irony in this because from the documents we have from the first century, we know that those who were wealthy often did so because of defrauding those who were poor. That the Israelite law of the Jubilee year was not being observed. That on the seventh year, property and lands were being returned to all Israelites. But there seemed to be in the Roman takeover and occupation that some Jews began to profit off of the misfortune of others. And so Jesus says, do not defraud. This is a translation and application of the command not to covet. And He is bringing something specifically to this rich man. 
that he had gotten rich at the expense of his neighbor. But yet he can't see it. He doesn't see his possession. And so then Jesus says this, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus tells him to liquidate his estate, his possessions, everything, sell up and come follow me. Follow me like my disciples. And many people ask, why does he give him this command? Simple reason is that Jesus was exposing the man's heart. This man who thought he had loved his neighbor well had not loved his neighbor well at all. And he hadn't loved his neighbor well because he hadn't loved God. You see what it says about Jesus. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It was out of his great reserves of love that Jesus commands this man to follow him because he knew that he would be free. He'd be free from what possessed him and what held him in life if he could sell off. Because see friends, we only break the other nine commandments when we've first broken the first commandment. To love the Lord our God. That we are to have no other gods before Him. That when we've broken that commandment, this is when we begin to violate all the other nine. And this man had been not loving his neighbor because he had another functional God. And his functional God was his stuff. It was his possessions. All the stuff in his life. Ultimately, these were all gifts of God. And yet now he held on to them and his meaning and significance and identity and security were all wrapped up in what he had. Jesus tells him to liquidate. And he can't do it. He can't do it. He can't imagine life without his stuff. What would that mean? Where would his security go? Where would his significance be? Was he really supposed to so identify with Jesus that that would be his standing in the community? And friends, when the answer to that question, where would our significance be? And we say, no, I'd rather have my stuff. That is when we know that we have functional idols at work in our lives. That we have other gods before the one true God. Because Jesus wasn't commanding this man to sell off so that he could prove himself worthy of God. Okay? That was not what the command was about. Jesus had loved the man. Jesus was willing to make sacrifice for the man's sins. That our love for God is always a response. It's the second word. It's never the first. We love because God first loved us. And this man was demonstrating that he didn't have a real interest in, in inheriting the life of the world to come. That his real interests were still grounded in this life. And friends, this is the first danger of possessions is we simply become possessed by them. But the second is this, is that we confuse the social approval that our possessions provide 
with divine approval. It was common in the first century world, and it's even common today, that when we see someone successful and rich in resources and possessions, that we tend to think that they have been blessed by God. And this man, he knew all the right titles. He came to Jesus in a proper way, announces that he is a good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He had a piety, an external piety. He had social graces. He had esteem and respect in the broader community. And it was widely assumed inside of first century Judaism that if you were wealthy, God had blessed you. Jesus obviously didn't see it that way. Jesus was critical of the way that the man came about his wealth. He wasn't critical about wealth. He was critical about the way the man came about his wealth. And he was critical of now that wealth possessing this man's heart and it dictating his life and this man's inability to give it up that was revealing of his much deeper disease. You see, where our security is is where our heart truly is. And this man found great security in his money and he found great security in the social status that it gave him. And he confused all that social favor with divine approval. And that's the great danger for us is to confuse those two because Jesus has to dissect and He surgically must excise, uh, must surgically cut out from this man this deep disease. Asking Him questions, probing Him that He can't confuse these two things. Social approval with divine approval. And the third danger that money can bring and possessions bring into our lives is we cannot enter the kingdom because we don't think we need to receive anything. We don't become like children. It's important to remember that this incident happens just after Jesus blesses the children. And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That we have to receive the kingdom passively. That it has to come to us as a gift. Jesus says, if you're to enter into the kingdom. Jesus tells the disciples this in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were confused. They seemed to have assumed that rich people were blessed by God as well. And so Jesus has to say it again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the key being children. He addresses His disciples that we have to become childlike. And children in the first century world had no rights. They had no entitlements. Everything they received was a gift. And do you see the difference between that posture in front of God and the posture of this rich man? That everything was not a gift. That he felt entitled. That he had his hands around things. 
He wasn't convinced that he really needed what Jesus was selling. And he definitely wasn't going to sell off in order to get what Jesus had. And when he heard about the narrowness of the kingdom and the difficulty with which one would pass into it, he just declined. It was ultimately a question of what he valued. Did he value what Jesus was offering? A renewed world that through the path of suffering, God would make all things right. Did the man value that? Or would he value the world as it is? And that's the question that Jesus presses on us today. The do we value the world to come where God removes the pollution of sin, purges it and cleanses the world, and gives it back to us in resurrected bodies? Or do we value the present world as it is with the riches and pleasures and possessions that it can provide? Jesus understands that for many who have those possessions, that they are an enormous distraction. And they hold back the need and the desire to believe in the Gospel message, the good news that Jesus has, because it just doesn't simply seem to be good news. Picasso, the famous European artist, said this about his painting. He said, I spent most of my adult life attempting to learn to draw like a child. As some of you may agree with that looking at his painting. But the thing is, is that we need to spend our adult lives learning to believe like children. That is to not feel entitled to anything that God offers to receive it gratefully and with joy, to be taken up into Jesus' arms and blessed freely, unmerited, without conditions, without qualifications, not coming like a camel loaded with its goods, trying to press ourselves without changing anything about our values into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't say that it works, says it doesn't work that way. The question becomes, is there hope for anyone then? That's what the disciples asked. They said, look, if the rich who are blessed by God can't get in, then can anyone be saved? You know, it doesn't seem that it's really possible. Jesus looks in verse 27 and He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Jesus provides hope for all of creation in this sentence. And He provides hope for every sinner that God has the power to renew the heart. That God has the power to free the rich from the love of riches. He has the power to free the poor from their covetousness of the rich. That God has the power to save and renew the heart, to reorient us to Him, to experience that love that Jesus looked on this man with and to then return and reflect that love back to God. That it's the impossible possibility. And this language was common amongst the first century rabbis. And they spoke of the impossible possibility normally in two scenarios. And the first was creation out of nothing. Or what we call creation ex nihilo. They would say that that's the impossible possibility. That God created the world out of nothing. 
And then they would also speak of resurrection. And they would say it's the impossible possibility in which God raises from the dust our bodies made new. And Jesus then expands it and says, yes, it's the impossible possibility that a human being is saved. Especially a rich one. Because God must turn the affections of the heart. He must displace those affections that are possessed with possessions. And they must become set upon Him. New affections must be given. And only God can do that, Jesus is saying. Only God can give those. And it's equal to an act of creation or resurrection, which is just simply an act of new creation. And friends, this is where the grace of God has to initiate with us if we are to believe and if we are to follow. And this man was hardened in his sins. He loved money more than he wanted to love God. He was captivated by what the world had to offer. He couldn't see the limitations. He found his security and his trust there. So why do this though? Why invest our security in the kingdom of God? Why invest our security in loving this God? Jesus gives the answer beginning in verse 29. Peter protests and says, see, we've left everything and followed you looking for some kind of accolades. And Jesus gives him an affirmation. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus says that we will inherit persecutions, that there will be difficulty, that just as His way to salvation and being installed as the world's true King involves suffering, so the way of His people would involve a similar suffering. But yet there was a hundredfold blessing that lay ahead. There was the life of the renewed world and all that that world would be. The riches of human life that God created would be restored. That it would be a fertile place. There wouldn't be scarcity. That there would be wholeness. That sin will be completely removed. That there will be pleasure, beauty, delight. That God will freely give us all those things to enjoy. And friends, the question is, is do we find that more valuable? The vision of a world corrected than we find the vision of the present world that pleasure and possessions can give you? Which one do we really value? Which one do we truly want? C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, gives a famous quotation. You've heard it before, but I want you to listen to it carefully again in light of what Jesus says. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And what Lewis is saying is that the problem for those with worldly affections is that we don't have a big enough imagination. That we don't imagine the world that God is intending for us to inherit. And that He wants to displace our love for things in this life with His great love for us and the promise of everything that is to come. And that we content ourselves with mud pies when there's something far more, a holiday at the sea. And so friends, don't be too easily pleased. Use your imagination to consider the world that Jesus' death and resurrection procures. The world that Jesus' death and resurrection secures for us. Find your security in that and not in your bank account or your retirement account. Find your security there and not in anything else that can anchor you in this life. But to know Jesus' great love for you, that He suffers and dies in order to reconcile you to God and give you the life of the world to come. Let your imagination run wild as to all that He will freely allow you to possess. All that He will freely allow you to inherit as you believe and trust Him. This is the only way to escape the love of money. The only way not to be perpetually disappointed. The only way not to be eternally covetous is to have something of greater value, of greater worth in your life. And this is what Jesus argues the Gospel is. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that like this young man, our values are inverted. And we can get so messed up and we can be so possessed by our possessions. Lord, we ask that You would help us and reorient our values. That we would not be found having other gods in our hearts and lives. Things that we covet. That we would not refuse Jesus' love. That we would know what it is to come like children and to receive without conditions. To be glad in what You give. To receive Your acceptance and forgiveness and also the world that lies ahead. Free us from our lesser loves, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.